Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, it's Yancey. Hello, it's Dimitri Jones returning your phone call. Hi, Miss Jones, how are you? Okay. I am not sure if you remember my name or my brother's name. He was a homicide victim back in 1992 when you were with the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office. Okay. His name was William Ford. I was calling to see if you were willing to, within, you know, your legal restrictions, um, answer some of the questions that have been sort of plaguing me for the last 22 years. No, I'm not going to do that. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Represent. I'm your host, Aisha Harris, and we've got a jam-packed episode for you this week. In a bit, you'll hear my conversation with Yance Ford, director of the stunning and incredibly personal documentary, Strong Island, which is currently streaming on Netflix. In the film, he confronts the grief that haunted his family after the murder of his brother, William Ford, 25 years ago, as well as a systematically racist society that continues not to value Black lives. But before we get to that, we've got another serious and very topical issue to discuss. The numerous sexual assault allegations connected to both the national theater chain Alamo Drafthouse and the long-running pop culture website Ain't It Cool News. Now, if you have zero idea what I'm referring to here, don't worry. We'll get you up to speed on how this is all connected and why it's important in a second. Joining me today to discuss everything that's gone down is IndieWire editor Kate Erbland, who has been covering this news over the past few weeks. Welcome to the show, Kate. It's great to have you on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So you've been covering this whole mess for a few weeks uh, now, ever since it sort of dropped earlier this month. And I guess it'd be useful, I think, for listeners just to sort of break down. Uh, there's a lot going on, uh, but the major key points <laughs> that have happened. Um, and I can start off. And if you want to help me out there uh, with some of the stuff that you've uh talked about, that would be great. Okay, perfect. So first of all, for listeners, we have the major players in this very ongoing saga. We have Tim and Carrie League, who were the founders of Alamo Drafthouse. They founded it in 1997. It's a theater chain. If you have not been to one, they are kind of the I think one of the earlier versions of what we have now of these cine- cinema plexes that are are having assigned seating, uh, you can order food, booze, like a whole meal uh, at these uh, these chains, and they also tend to show they first run movies, but also very you know 
indie movies, uh, cult movies. They have special screenings and special event series. So they're very much like a art housey niche sort of chain that also can appeal to the masses. And they co-founded Fantastic Fest in 2005 alongside Harry Knowles of Ain't It Cool News. And Ain't It Cool News is a website that covers pop culture, uh, specifically uh, especially like sci-fi, action, horror, fantasy, and Fantastic Fest was sort of an offshoot of that, a, a very sort of uh, focused on those same genres. So the scandals essentially, uh, there have been a couple. The The first is that last fall, editor-in-chief Devin Farasi stepped down from his position at Birth Movies Death, which is owned by Alamo Drafthouse, and he did so amid sexual assault allegations. And... It, It came to light recently, earlier this month, that he actually had been secretly reemployed by Tim League and and Alamo Drafthouse, not in the same position as editor-in-chief, but he had been, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, Kate, he was copywriting, but also his name started showing up in blurbs for the Fantastic Fest. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, what my understanding is that at some point, um, once he had originally stepped down last October, he had been secretly rehired by the Alamo Draft House and was doing some sort of copywriting for their website. He was not involved with Birth Movies Death. And this came to light um, earlier this month when the Fantastic Fest program guide went live online and, you know, each blurb had a, a byline and there were bylines uh, bearing Devin's name. And that's how people realized that this had happened. And it was pretty shocking. And it was a, a very strange way for this news to come to light. Right. And apparently no one, even some of the people who were employed at the Fantastic Fest, even knew that this was happening. It's not like it seems like it was just the owners who knew about it and and no one else even working with the festival were aware of it until everyone else knew, which I think is another sort of blow. Well, I mean, I've heard various things. I mean, I think one thing that like we're not very clear on is when exactly Devin was hired back and who knew about it. There's been various chatter online that uh, certain other members of the Draft House team were maybe CC'd on emails that Devin was on after he had stepped down. Um, I've seen pictures online from other events that have happened in the last year where Devin was present at Draft House events um, and was identified as a Draft House employee. But it's still unclear when he came back on and who actually knew. But Tim definitely knew because he's the one who brought him back. Right. And when this all came to light, Tim League also posted a statement on Facebook, uh, basically explaining his reasoning for bringing him back. The it's a, it's a pretty long post. We can include it in our links to the show notes. But uh, one of the things he talks about is, is the idea of forgiveness and of second chances. And he emphasizes that Devin has apparently gotten help and rehabilitation for alcoholism and things like that, and that he felt as though he deserved a second chance. Uh, That has not flown with a lot of people, uh, and I'm not sure how you feel about it. But And we should emphasize just to make clear that these are allegations, like nothing has gone, you know, to court or anything along those lines. Um, And these allegations, uh, at least from one of the people uh, against Devin Farasi, this is from uh, like 2004, I think the the woman uh, said that they happened. So it's been a while, but yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah, it's been at least 10 years. Yes, yes. But I mean, you have to wonder, like, there is such a thing, I think, uh, of as, you know, getting a second chance and, and but 
I'm just wondering if there are going to be, and maybe maybe I haven't checked my, uh, haven't gone through all of my RSS feed this morning, but who knows? There could be more allegations as of now against Evan Ferrasi. Um, I don't know if you've heard of any more, or if it's just been that one person who uh, accused him. There have been a couple of other women who have stepped forward. There, there's this one woman who I believe is a photographer in Vancouver named Kat Arnett, who has been over the past few weeks, pretty vocal on social media about some experiences that she had and I, with Devin. And I believe that she's like started a blog where other women have sent her their own allegations and their own claims against Devin that are being posted. Um, and so there are other stories out there. I don't think things that have been reported quite as much as the initial claims against Devin that first came to light uh, last October. Right, right. Now, I want to get to your piece, which sort of broke open another... Uh, arm of this whole thing, which are which are the allegations currently against Harry Knowles, who is one of the founders of Ain't It Cool News, as we mentioned earlier, and who was a co-founder of uh, the Fantastic Fest. And you and your colleague, Dana Harris, you reported on a woman named Jasmine Baker in IndieWire about the accusation she had against him, Harry Knowles, uh, groping her several times at Draft House events. These this incident happened at the turn of like 2000, 2001 around then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. Yeah. So, would you mind telling me a little bit about like interviewing her and and sort of how that story came to be for you? Well, last uh, late last week, there was there was another news item that came out that we helped break that uh, Harry Knowles was not going to be attending Fantastic Fest and that Ain't It Cool News had been removed as a sponsor from Fantastic Fest. Again, a festival that he helped co-found and had always been a large part of. So when I started getting tips about that, we were, you know, digging and reaching out to people and we broke the story about the sponsorship. And interestingly enough, the leagues would not comment, but Harry did. And when he commented, he said that he wanted to step away from it because there were some allegations coming to light about an incident with, as he said, an ex-girlfriend from many years ago that he thought were ugly and he didn't want to be a part of. And I think sort of Jasmine was emboldened by that statement to come forward with her own story about Harry to say, you know, if there are claims against him, you know, here's my story and here are my claims and here are my allegations and what he's saying about, their, you know, oh, there are stories about me and an ex-girlfriend that aren't true that's just a very small part of the story. So she came forward and, you know, I've spent, you know, the last week working on this and I posted the story on Saturday with her coming forward about the stories um, about Harry Knowles groping her on at least two occasions at draft house events in 1999 or about 2000. And once that story was posted, it sort of exploded. And a lot of other women came forward posting on social media with their own experiences. So I posted a a follow-up story on Tuesday with four other women stepping forward with their own allegations against Terry Knowles, um, sexual harassment, sexual assault, groping. And I spoke to three of them just to sort of get a fuller look at their stories um, because they had originally, as I said, they had originally gone forward on social media and they really wanted to tell their story. And after Jasmine had told hers, there just seemed to be this outpouring of women who had had experiences and like Jasmine had been maybe told to stay away from him. Don't talk about it. That's just how Harry is. And we're no longer wanting to stay silent about those experiences. Yeah. It seems as though this has really, uh, 
it's really brought to light a lot of issues that were maybe bubbling under the surface of of what it's like to be a woman in film criticism today and the the sort of pushback that they often get for coming forward about these things in a industry that is very still still very heavily male dominated mm-hmm. and there's been a lot of fallout uh, from this and there have been several people who have stepped down from uh, positions uh, out of protest more more um, more so and the, the the phrase has been thrown around boys club uh, of Alamo Draft House as a boys club and of the film industry film criticism industry as a boys club more largely I've been hearing a lot of conversations amongst my friends and acquaintances who are female film critics about how this is like this is not new. Like this is this is all these things they've experienced. They've they've um, and they've been afraid to talk about it. And even the people there have been several pieces written of, in the last couple of days of women who were torn over whether to even go to Fantastic Fest this year and the decisions they made about that. I mean, what are the conversations like uh, that you're hearing around this among the women film critics you know? I mean, the interesting thing, particularly about the Harry Knowles story, is that. Um, the women who've come forward, someone like Jasmine or Gloria Walker, who is in my follow-up piece, these are people who are part of the Austin film scene, that community, but are not film writers or film critics, and they're not interested in being part of that, and they still got pulled into this. And then I spoke to other women who are film critics and film writers who felt an even deeper layer of fear because they didn't want to speak out against Harry or against the leagues because they thought that it would be detrimental to their career. And I, you know, have them on record and that's in my follow-up story that they were afraid. And I think I've been hearing from a lot of other women in the industry who, like you said, have had similar experiences and especially in the earlier part of their careers were concerned about speaking out um, about men in positions of power who had maybe done things to make them feel uncomfortable and, that's been a huge problem. And I, I think that a lot of this stuff is finally coming to light. And I'm hopeful that it will make other women, especially younger women who are interested in getting into this line of work, feel like if something happens, they can speak out about it. And a lot of the victims who I've spoken to, that's very important to them. And that's one of the reasons they really wanted to speak out because they don't want this to happen to more women. And if it does happen, they want them to feel safe coming forward and talking about it and not feel like they're going to be personally threatened or that there's going to be professional uh, ramifications that might derail the early part of their career. Like what steps are Tim League? And I haven't even heard anything from Carrie League about this. Like, do you are, do you know of anything of what the steps are that they're taking? I mean, the last thing that I heard is uh, Tim's latest statement, which is the first statement that he's made during the past couple of weeks as this has been going on that seemed to outline something that even looks like actionable steps, which is he said that they're rebuilding their board of directors and that uh, Kristen Bell, who is uh, one of the higher ups at Fantastic Fest and has been involved with Fantastic Fest and Alamo Drafthouse for a long time, is going to have a higher position of power. And this is not... Not the actress. Not the actress person, but just to clarify that. Yes. And that they're going to be... The board of directors is going to be really dedicated towards building and growing and changing to have a truly inclusive, safe environment. And that's the first statement I've heard from Draft House where there's been anything that sounds like, well, here's a step we're actually taking. So I I hope that we're going to hear more from them about what they're actually doing and putting into place and the processes that they're taking. And, you know, I'm sure that there, I know that there's a lot of 
reflection and introspection going on right now, but I think that we need to hear concrete steps. And I would hope sooner rather than later, because that's what I'm hearing from a lot of people. Like they want to know what these steps are going to be and how change is actually going to be enacted. Mm -hmm. So I guess final thoughts, uh, do you, uh, to sort of piggyback off the idea, um, I, I mentioned earlier of boycotting. Do you yourself have any intentions of boycotting or did you even go to Alamo? I know you're based in New York as well. And we just got one in, in Brooklyn uh, a few months ago. And I'm torn over whether to boycott. Uh, but I'm curious if you have any plans to do so. At this point, it's complicated for me because I the other thing I think it's important to remember about the draft house is that there are locations all over the country. I believe some of them are franchises. Um, I have a lot of close friends who work for the draft house or work for birth movies death. So this is also like a, a personal thing for me. And at this point, I just, I don't think that I'm going to launch into an official boycott, but I don't have any further plans to go to a draft house until further steps are, are made. I'm, I'm not going to be going, but I don't think I'm going to be, you know, tweeting, you know, hashtag boycott draft house, but I don't feel comfortable going until real changes are made. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would agree with that. Well, thank you so much for the reporting you've done so far and the more reporting I'm sure you're going to be doing and covering this. And I agree with you. I hope that we continue to have these conversations. And I also unfortunately don't think that this is the last we'll hear of these sorts of allegations. And, you know, these sort of things tend to snowball because people finally feel more comfortable coming forward. Uh, So we'll see. And uh, we'll see what happens with these allegations. And thank you so much, Kate, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Hey everyone, Represent Producer Verilyn just popping in to add that IndieWire did reach out to Harry Knowles by phone to give him a chance to respond to the sexual assault allegations. He said, quote, I categorically deny it. Head over to our show page for more details on this ongoing story. Up next is my interview with Yance Ford about his new documentary that was nearly a decade in the making, Strong Island. His 24-year-old brother, William Ford, was shot and killed in 1992 by a white man who worked at an auto shop during a dispute over his car repairs. William was unarmed, but a grand jury in heavily segregated Long Island, New York, declined to indict his killer. Strong Island is Yance's attempt to chronicle the immense grief, silence, and unanswered questions his brother's death brought upon his family. Last month, he talked to me about the difficult process of finally talking about his brother with his mother and sister on camera his own struggles with coming out as trans, and much more. Check it out. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on, Yance, uh, on Represent. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Aisha. It's really great to be here. Yeah, I. this movie really, your film really got to me, mm. and I'm very excited to talk to you about it. I guess my first question, I know that this has been a movie that's been years in the making. Yeah. About how long total did it take you from conception to where we are now here where you the movie's coming out soon sure from conception to you know lock picture dcp creation run to sundance it was 10 years wow and it was a you know a project that started sort of gestating when i was still an undergraduate because my brother was murdered when i was sophomore in college and i was an art student and i started making you know sort of sophomore level 
you know, work about uh, about his death. But I was studying photography then. And I took a workshop in 1996 at Third World Newsreel, which is a mm-hmm. nonprofit organization here in New York. And it was the first time that I had shot through a film camera. Um, it was a 16-millimeter Bolex, and I learned to edit on a Steenbeck. And that was the moment when it occurred to me that I could make a film. Um, and it wasn't until 10 years later that I realized that I needed to make the film and that I had to start at that point. And that mm. was January of 2006. Wow. Yeah. That is that is a long time. And what exactly was your impetus for making this film? What were there what answers did you want solved or what sort of closure did you hope to get from making this film? Sure. I had more I had more questions than I had answers. Um I didn't necessarily have uh, a desire for closure because my brother had been dead for 15 years um, when I started making Strong Island. And, you know, over the course of that, you know, 10 years, you incorporate someone's death into your life. They become, you know, their, their absence, their loss becomes a part of your, your sort of daily routine. Um, so it wasn't so much closer as it was a desire to pull back the veil of silence that had settled over my brother's story because it happened um, in an age before social media. Right. Um, he was killed two years before the Los Angeles um, uprising or the Rodney King riots, you know, depending on how you'd like to refer to them. And, you know, we all experienced that tape as the first time um, you know, that, that the country all saw the same piece of footage, but came away with a different understanding of what had happened. So that was sort of at, at the, the very beginning edge of what would eventually become social media, but there was nothing. There were fewer than 3,000 words in the local paper. There was no um, archived press coverage. We found about 30 seconds, maybe less, of archived um, B-roll from the night of the, of the shooting, but they didn't even archive the wraparound story. Yeah. So there's this sort of casual fragility to black life that I think that is being pushed back against really vigorously now. But um, in 1992, it was like he was a soap bubble that sort of burst and disappeared. Mm. And, you know, at first, the silence um, is about shame. You know, when you have a, a relative whose murderer, and I use that term deliberately, mm. whose murderer isn't punished or isn't even brought to trial, and who's said by a grand jury not to have committed a crime, um, when that person walks out of the court, your your dead loved one is essentially indicted for their own murder. And... It was my desire to push back against that. It was my it was my need to finally speak uh, on my own behalf and also to um, to give a voice to my mother and my sister and my brother's um, friend who was there the night w- you know that he was shot um, a voice and and sort of the chance to testify um, both in the traditional sense of the black church in my mother's uh, instance especially um, but just in general give them the ability to testify in, in a way that they hadn't been able to because the case never proceeded past the grand jury. Mm. That silence very much resonates throughout the film. You talk about it, your mother talks about it, your sister talks about that silence and that shame. Had this happened after Rodney King, or had it happened even now, where we have people like Trayvon Martin, Ferguson, all of these things, mm-hmm. all over the media, do you feel as though that silence maybe wouldn't have been a part of your family? You would have been more willing to to speak about it? 
Yeah, I think that if if my brother had been killed um, now or you know like a year ago, I think that my family's experience of the aftermath of his death um, and the subsequent years might have been very different. You know, the the community in which we lived rallied around my family. Um, it was a very close knit community, and we had their full support. We wrote to the governor, we wrote to the FBI, you know, requesting special prosecutors, and everyone declined um, our requests for for intervention. And at that time, there was nowhere else to go, you know. And and in the absence of, um, you know, the the functioning of the of the judicial system, right? In the absence of any recourse, um, the silence is what rushes in, right? Because that that ab- that absence of of due process is what creates the void, and the void gets filled by silence. Mm. Um, if it, if he had been killed today, I think that we would have access to um, people who are more active. Um, both legally and you know more um, you know, community-based uh, you know you know activists and organizations and just a greater network of people around the country who were able to speak to one another and I think that the first few years um, could have been different um, the first few years being I think the most difficult but one of the things that Strong Island also does that I think is hopefully one of its biggest contributions is to show what this kind of thing looks like over time. The film really captures, you know, sort of in recollection and in real time, you know, 20 years of an arc of my family and not just William's death, but the aftermath of his death. And the aftermath is what I don't think would um, be different. We're just starting to talk about um, Mm. self-care in in the black community, and we're just starting to talk about what it means to live um, in uh, a world where life is so tenuous, right? Um, and, you know, my parents both, um, I think, their grief manifested in a physical way. Um, you know, we know in the film um, that my father suffered a stroke a year after my brother uh, was shot. And my mother had her own physical manifestations of, of grief and trauma as well. Um, if it happened now, I you know, it's hard to say if that part of it would have been different, but I certainly think that the isolation um, that that magnified the silence would have been reduced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even without the silence, then you also have the expectations that you are then, if you're a mother especially, of yeah. someone who's been shot, you are going to be at the forefront, sure. um, which I imagine just brings up a whole other host of psychological issues that one would have to deal with. Yeah. Um, it's just never. No one wants to be in that in that club. Uh, to to paraphrase, um, I think it was Trayvon Martin's yeah. father who said that too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a club now. You know, in the wake of Charlottesville, that um, Heather Heyer's mother mm-hmm. is is a member of. Um, and I think that the, the 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 devastation that happens is because no one expects it to happen to them, mm-hmm. right? Um, no one expects that um, an, an argument that happens hundreds of times a day on Long Island. And, you know, Long Island is a place with no public transportation where most people spend almost all of their time in their cars. Right. So an, an argument about a car repair, a fender bender, these things, you know, they're, they're par for the course for living in the suburbs, um, especially a suburb that's designed to keep people who cannot afford cars out. Mm-hmm. I know that you were able to come to the point where you felt like you had to make this movie. Yeah. But considering your 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 mom and your sister's um, silence for so long, did, did you have to convince them to participate in the film? And, and, you know, how did you sort of cope with that? Because that's a, that's a whole other 
sort of emotional process to go through of having to finally sit with your your mother and sister and talk about these things and do it on camera. Sure. My mother and my sister and, you know, William's friends, um, no one ever said no. And in fact, making the film um, was the first time that the three of us, um, you know, my mom, sister and I, had spoken to each other about, you know, our own personal experiences of William's death. And I think that a lot of what I realized is that a lot of the silence was about shame, but a lot of the silence was also about protecting each other. Um, because of the overwhelming nature of grief, I think that um, children especially want to protect their parents, parents want to protect their children, and what happens is that um, you know we all sort of settle into this, like, I'm going to protect my family or I'm going to help protect everyone else. By not talking. By not talking, and, and, and then what happens is just that nobody's talking. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, when I asked my mother um, first, um, you know, in, two, in gosh, May of 2008, you know, shooting with a with a friend who had a camera um, and, you know, she gave the most amazing interview um, at, the, at her kitchen table with the door open and, you know, the bird singing and the uh, ice cream trucks in the background. But it was like um, it was like we, had, you know, by engaging in this endeavor we had sort of opened a door that had been closed for a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to everyone who sat down for an interview for the film because it was not easy to come into a room, um, you know, with lights and cameras and not have a, have a clue um, about what I was going to ask them. Mm-hmm. And no one knew what I was going to ask them before um, the question, you know, came out of my mouth. So that was also, you know, extraordinary act of trust as well. And I'm thankful to all of them for it. When one of the things that stuck out to me was something both you and your mother said, which was you both felt some some sort of blame for what happened to William. Your mother said she kind of blamed herself for not instilling in in her kids the idea that, you know, or for instilling in her kids the idea that we should judge people by the content of their character and not by race. Which, funny funny enough, like, in this case, it seems like William may have given this guy, like, he, he wasn't fully aware of the racial dynamics that could be at play here. Um, and you also said you blamed yourself for, you know, something he revealed to you earlier mm-hmm. um, that was sort of a precursor to his shooting. Mm-hmm. Do you still feel blame now, today? Or is that something you've sort of been able to mm. let go? Um, I like it. I've I've been able to let go of the blame, um, and what I think is really interesting. You know, I'll, I'll return to my, you know to the question about me in a moment. But you know, when I think about my mom, and and I think about today, uh, Reverend Al Sharpton and um, you know the National Action Network has organized a, a, the Thousand Minister March on Washington to commemorate the 54th anniversary of the March on Washington 54 years ago. My mother in the film expresses a regret at teaching her kids what is held up as a sort of, you know, this like sort of sacred, you know, piece of American, um, uh, you know, scripture almost, right? Judged by the you know content of the character, not the color of your skin. And the mistake that my brother made was to believe that he could be fully human, right? To believe that he could be angry and black at the same time and not be in danger. Um, and what he did not realize is, um, you know, that 
those two things combined um, created, um, you know, sort of perfect storm and you know, sort of triggered what we had seen in Los Angeles, um, you know, for example, which was, okay, I've, I've, got, I've got the perfect, you know, I've got the perfect sort of soup here. I've got an angry black man and I have a gun. Um, and I think that what my mother was expressing in that moment was um, her regret at not teaching us to be um, more aware of the ease with which white people historically have been able to take black lives um, without um, you know, having to face any consequences for it. Um, the phone call that you know, is in the film that I talk about feeling guilty um, about is, you know, I've, I've sort of made peace with the guilt of that 19-year-old. Um, but that phone call is actually still something that I hold really sacred and, and something that's really dear to me still um, because it is the moment when, um, you know, it's like I felt like my older brother was calling his younger brother. You know, like mm-hmm. there was that sort of, um, you know, sort of rec- recognition on, on a way that might have been unconscious for him um, but still in the sort of lexicon of, you know, sibling relationships, um, for me felt very much like a recognition of my own gender identity. Mm. Um, and the fact that he called me is still something that I hold very dear. Um, and the fact that, you know, I didn't tell my parents about that phone call, um, is still something that I, you know, I wish I had made a different decision about, but that phone call will always be dear to me. I will always live with that contradiction because I'm not willing to reduce um, that phone call or to reduce William in that moment to simply uh, someone who was bragging about, um, you know, having stood up for our mother. You know, mm-hmm. he was also um, reaching out to me and, and making connection with me. Um, and, you know, that's, that's always going to be a special thing for me. Mm-hmm. Always. Yeah. Did you find it, if you're willing to share, like, did you find it, uh, were you able to tell your mom and your sister and and what was that like for you? Yeah. I was able to tell them both. um, And it was difficult. Um, But, you know, I think that they had the same, you know, reaction, which is, um, you know, there are no perfect victims, right? William behaved badly three weeks before he was shot and killed. Mm. You know, though I wish he had made a different choice. I I do not think that if you're scared to death on March 19th, that you don't call the police um, and that you wait and, until April 7th um, and shoot and kill someone. If you, are, if you are afraid for your life on March 19th, most reasonable people call the police on March 19th. And that's not what happened in this case. I'm not angry. I'm also not willing to accept that someone else gets to say who William was. And if you're uncomfortable with me asking these questions, you should probably get up and go. I know that... In an interview you gave a few years ago, you you mentioned that originally when you were making the film, you thought it was very emotionally resonant, but it felt very sort of uh, what you see all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You used to work for POV. um, 
looking through submissions for documentaries, for PPS. And so you felt as though it felt a little uh, by the books. Mm-hmm. What, in what way did you change your approach to the film? Like, what, it, what did it look like in its original incarnation? And then what sort of steps did you take to make it mm. less um, just straightforward and more cliche? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I'd watched thousands of films over 10 years, thousands of mm. films. Um, and, you know, almost all of the films that I'd seen about criminal, criminal justice um, were made by white filmmakers and, you know, ostensibly for white audiences. Um, and so the first thing I did um, when I reapproached, you know, what would eventually become um, the final version of Strong Island was to reconsider the gaze, right? And it's, a, and it's something that you don't even realize that you're doing consciously unless you think about it. Um, so, so, so the gaze, you know, I, I had shot the film with the camera as a stand-in for my eye, not as a surrogate for the audience. So the material was there. It was the way in which we handled the material that had to change. It was the assumption of the audience that had to change, right? So we, we, we retuned the film so that it would work on two frequencies. The frequency of um, people for whom this experience was not new, um, and for you know, for whom the film would serve as an affirmation of their you know experience, um, and and the frequency you know for people who have a difficult time believing that this kind of thing happens, and have a difficult time believing that you know injustice is often um, you know uh, a result of the way that race influences our criminal justice system. Um, I also needed you know to reconsider the organizing concept of the film. Um, because I, I had unwittingly um, sort of made a sad black woman film, right? And, and I, I don't, um, you know, and I sort of woke up and I realized that because I had not allowed space for my own anger in, in you know, as a character in the film, um, that I had essentially avoided my mother's anger. Um, and, you know, when I realized that, I was also able to sort of go back to that moment when she talks about testifying in front of the grand jury and she says that she started to cry. I became very angry with myself because at one point I began to cry and I hated that moment because... I felt that, you know, they were going to say, here is another black woman who didn't do her job with her child, and now she wants us to make somebody pay. That's how I felt. I sort of remember sitting there saying to myself, Yancy, she's talking directly to you. She's telling you that she hated crying. Right. Mm-hmm. So you need to listen to that. Right. Your mother is talk. Your mother is telling you how she wants to be portrayed. And that is almost something that we never get um, from um, black characters in films, um, you know, it, sort of historically, not with this sort of recent, um, quote unquote, wave um, of films. There's much, you know, the characters are, are much more fully realized, much more agency and control over the way that they are represented. 
Um, and it was my responsibility to go back and represent my mother in a way, the way in which she would have represented herself and to allow the film to be um, not just a sad story, but also a, um, an angry story um, and a story that, you know, we see that we say at the beginning, if you are uncomfortable with me asking these questions, you might as well get up and go. Right. So it's it's you know, it's the kind of film that's not that's not easy to sit through. But, you know, the course of the last 25 years haven't been easy to live with. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the film needed to reflect that. Um, and, you know, that's that's how, you know, the sort of the reboot of the of the film happened. And um, it's much more. Um, well, you said it had you said it really affected you. So I'm, I'm sort of curious to know how it felt. Yeah. I mean, it's that when you say it like that, that makes a lot of sense to me because it I mean, I always keep going back to the um Michael Brown's mother when mm. she after the the jury or the jury came back mm-hmm. um, and there was that clip of her just like so angry. Mm-hmm. And I remember that being so powerful because we're so used to these black families having to be very like mm-hmm. composed and reserved and just be dignified in, in their mm-hmm. in their mourning. And seeing her like get so angry felt like very visceral and very like it felt like we had made I mean I hate to say progress in in this sort of uh portrayal of of families because like obviously we don't want this to keep happening but like it felt very like a release and like it was okay for her to like let that out absolutely um and I see that also in the film and I, I I also thought it was really interesting for you to even were you always going to be yourself in the movie because no yeah when i first started i mean i was i i think i was fooling myself i had created this grand illusion that i was never going to be on screen yeah um and that if i was going to be on screen that i would always be playing my brother mm. um because there are some elements of performance um yeah the know, fi- one of the final shots yeah one of the final shots yeah. that's actually um you know spoiler that's actually me on the ground i i um, had a feeling i was like i wonder if that's that's him yeah, yeah that's yeah. That, that's me um, and, you know, and so I did the director's trick and in, in sort of saying, OK, well, let's just let's shoot this, but we're only going to use the audio. Right. Mm. But it was it was really obvious after a certain point, even though it took me you know, a long time to admit it, that these these interviews um, needed to be in the film in, 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 in a much greater way than they had been. Mm. So with regards to not being able to or having regret that you weren't able to tell your brother that you were queer, how have you reconciled that with finally telling this, telling his story through this film? Sure. Um, well, you know, there, there are a few things um, like that. The phone call that we that we hear in the film, you know, I, I think that sort of on an unconscious level, that was. William sort of recognizing my my gender identity and my non gender conforming identity, um, because that's the kind of phone call that you make to your your little brother. Mm. Um, and I didn't have a word like I didn't have the word transgender in in nineteen ninety. Um, and I identified as queer, but I knew that there was something more. I didn't have a word for it. Mm. Um, but what I've learned is that the regret that I experienced in the film. Um, was is is actually and and the regret that I experienced up until I started talking about um, you know William with his friends, um, I never came out to him uh, you know sort of properly. 
I had actually planned on coming out to my family um, on spring break. Um, William was killed a week before spring break. So that sort of derailed that plan for a year. Mm. Um, but in, in the aftermath of the film being released, I have been told by my brother's best friend that William knew. He was like, uh, you know, we were literally doing a Q&A in, um, you know, in Durham, in Durham North Carolina um, at uh, Full Frame. And we were on stage and he was like, uh, Yancey, William told all of us, like, you know, he was like, listen, my sister, you know, is my sister's gay. So I'm taking her to the prom. I'm doing this. I'm because Kevin, you know, as his best friend, you know, they're little, nobody's little sister had any dates. We all went to Catholic school. <laughs> you know, our parents were always like, like no. Um, but but it was it was a wonderful surprise to me that happened, in, you know, on stage in, 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 in an auditorium full of like over a thousand people. Mm-hmm. So at first I didn't actually hear it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, my partner was like, did you hear what Kevin said? I was like, yeah, of course I heard what Kevin said. And she was like, no, William knew. He knew. And that's the thing about my family. And that's the thing that I've heard from so many um, queer people of color around the world that I've shown the film to. Um, they've actually said, thank you. Thank you for showing a family of color that loves their queer child, that loves their masculine presenting daughter. Um, and, you know, thank you for helping to break the stereotype that, you know, black families are the most homophobic you know, families in the universe and that the black community rejects wholesale, um, you know, anyone who's non-gender conforming or queer identified in some way. Um, and my experience with my family, um, when I say that my, my, my parents told us that our principal job in life was to love each other, that didn't change after I came out. And I think that there, you know, this this movement and you know sort of Black Lives Matter being being started by and led by three queer women, um, and you know the fact that you know LGBT you know um, QIA um, people have been at the forefront of you know movements for social change for so long um, is now becoming you know much more transparent in a, in, in a way that sort of was obvious when sort of I was in college and then sort of dipped down mm. and for some reason I'm not sure why um, and then sort of it's on the it's on the ascent again when people are realizing you know and there's a, there's a film coming out soon called you know The Life and Death of Mar- Martha P. Johnson right, right. Uh, Marsha Martha Marsha Marsha P. Johnson right? right The Life and Death of Marsha P. Johnson is a perfect example of how queer people of color have been at the movement for social uh, you know at the forefront of movements for social change um, for for generations, I mean Bayard Rustin, too. Bayard Rustin, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Today is the fifty fourth anniversary of the march that he organized, mm-hmm. right? A, a gay black man um, who was in King's inner circle, and sure, some people might not have been happy about it, but there were other people who were just fine with Bayard Rustin, mm-hmm. right? And we don't hear enough about those people. We hear a lot about the people who didn't like the fact that he was gay, um, but what we don't hear about, and what we need to hear more about, are the people who, in communities of color around this country accept those queer people um, and the non-gender conforming people in their communities just as much as anyone else. Um, and my family is an example of that. My community is an example of that. Um, and I hope that, you know, Strong Island can be a reminder communities you know, to communities everywhere that you know, if you have a non-gender conforming person in your family or if you have a queer person in your family, they need to hear from you that, that you love them, right? Even if you say it, even if you said it yesterday, say it today, mm-hmm. right? Because... You know, the world is a hard place. 
And you get so many messages of, you know, you get so many negative messages about um, so much of of what's a deep and fundamental part of who you are um, that the people who surround you, who love you, need to counteract those messages. Mm. You've spent a lot of time uh, watching, as we mentioned earlier, watching lots of documentaries, and you've now made your first documentary, your first feature. Mm. What is your favorite documentary that's just really stuck with you? Mm. The, my favorite documentary of all time. Hmm. Well, I'm I'm gonna have to say that the number one. I would have I would have maybe a list of ten, but the number one spot is occupied by um, by Tongues Untied mm. uh, by Marlon Riggs. Yeah. Um, I saw that um, as a young college student, and I was like, wait a minute, black, queer, and unapologetic. I've got to watch this, and mm-hmm. I've got to watch it again, and I've got to watch it again. Um, so, you know, I think that that Riggs' entire you know body of work sort of occupies you know sort of first place, and then you know after that it's it's sort of you know my 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 tastes range from Patricio Guzman to Agnes Varda, um, you know, and sort of everyone uh, in between. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously Stanley Stanley Nelson and you know Eyes on the Prize, um, but also you know sort of I skew you know toward the experimental so there's this like little known film called General Orders number nine that I think mm. is one of the, like the most amazing films I've ever seen um, um, but then there's also hands on a hard body which is you know some it's a quirky little film about a uh, a contest for a truck in Texas where the person who can keep their hand on the truck for the longest amount of time wins um, it's <laughs> it's it's really it's really funny but it's also a great like human like tragedy story it's, it's a great you know it's a great thing so this is sort of a similar question yeah. but um, the one thing I ask all of my guests is what is the last thing I know you've been in a lot of pre-production yeah. uh, or post-production and all that stuff yeah. uh, but what is the last thing you saw where you felt represented on screen Oh gosh! Someone else asked me that question. Oh, um, hmm. and and the first thing, <laughs> the first and only thing that I was able to um, um, come up with was uh, was tongues untied. But then I remembered, and I know this is going to date me, but I don't care because Gen X is tired of your BS. <laughs> Um, that, it's okay. That, that I, I'll is, allow it. <laughs> I have that. I have that banner. I have that sort of like like printed out as a banner across my desk. Generation X is tired of your bullshit. Um, <laughs> set it off. <gasps> set it off. Set it off. What really? Yes. Oh my god, I love that. It's like, I mean, talk about just like I could watch that over and over and over and over again. And I was like, oh, how could I have forgotten? Set it off. That was so awesome. I mean. You know, it, it it was horrible. Also, that everybody died, but it was just like <laughs> spoiler, spoiler. Twenty one years later, but yes. <laughs> but said it. I I remember it set it off, and I and I just remember being like Latifa. Yes, <laughs> you know? yeah. It's such. I mean that that group of women, and you know, just like fierce, gender nonconforming. Mm-hmm. You know, just like and ang- and angry, and angry for right for and the right righteously reasons. angry. Yeah, and you know, like willing to. Act on their anger mm-hmm. and just like fully present, fully embodied, fully, you know, like with interior lives and, and just like with motivations and be they conflicted or not. It was just like it was that whole little 
boom, and, and it was action, you know, and they were like, it was a car chase, and it was just, it was like, it was just like all the popcorn plus the, plus the representation. It was just great. Not, I, so I would go back to set it off. Ah, that's such a great, I need to rewatch that. Yeah. I've been meaning to, because ever since Girls Trip came out, I've been like, I want to rewatch uh, Set It Off. And yeah, it's you so have good. To. You have to. I haven't seen Girls Trip either. It's on my list, as is, you know. So many other things. Last night's episode of Game of Thrones. I'm, I'm trying to put my fingers in my ears. But <laughs> I think it has something to do with Littlefinger, which makes me very happy, because I really can't stand that character. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Yance. Thank you Likewise, so much. Aisha. Thank and you so much, and thank you for this podcast. It's a real, it's a real treat for me. I, you know, it's on my, it's on my, what do they call it? Uh, feed. My rotation. Yeah, it's in my, it's in my rotation. Yes. So thank you. Well, thank you, and everyone, check out Strong Island. It's uh, well after this will air. This will be released after it comes out, but it's yeah. on Netflix. It's on Netflix. You can Google it. Strong Island documentary. It should come up uh, right there. And that's a wrap. You can and definitely should check out Strong Island on Netflix now. It's one of the most gut-wrenching and fascinating documentaries I've seen this year. Represent is produced by the lovely, awesome Verlyn Williams, and our excellent social media assistant is Marissa Martinelli. Our intro-outro music is performed by the sweet San Francisco funk soul band Midtown Social. And by the way, if you happen to live in New Orleans, we are coming to you live next month as part of the New Orleans Film Festival. We've got a really fabulous special guest that I think you all are really going to enjoy. Listeners can go to slate.com slash live to get their passes to the festival now or snag individual tickets to our show on October 2nd. And NOLA Represent listeners, if you want to attend on us, leave a comment on our Facebook wall sharing one of your favorite episodes or interviews of Represent, and we'll randomly select one of you for a pair of tickets. Until next time. <laughs>